Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you uh, this Lord's Day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we just heard your word read, and as we will hear it preached, we pray that you would do a miracle, and by a miracle that you would soften hardened hearts to be able to see and hear uh, your truth to us, and that we would leave here changed people all for your name's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at what happens when the kingdom of God, which is an inevitable and unavoidable kingdom, comes in and breaks into our lives, um, how it um, disturbs our own personal kingdoms and national kingdoms. Uh, this morning, what you just heard uh, from chapter 20 is now sort of a, a picture of the in, from the inside. This is actually one of the uh, only places that we have where Paul is speaking directly to church leaders before he leaves them. 
And so we see how the kingdom of God is going to come about um, in Paul's message, his final message to these elders here in the ch- at the church in Ephesus. Paul is, is hiding out, as we uh, just read in, the, in the, uh, the city or town of uh, Miletus there, that's about t- 30 miles away from Ephesus. And so he's, he's asked for his elders to come be with him one last time. And this, he knows this will be the last time he sees them. This is the last time that he'll talk with them, cry with them, weep with them, laugh with them, do all the wonderful things that he has been doing with them for the past three years. And it's also a glimpse that we get uh, as well uh, at this point in history when the apostles will actually leave the church um, and, and then the, the church as Jesus intends for it, how it to grow and be overseen by shepherds and elders uh, we see this happening here as well because Paul will not return uh, to Ephesus. So with that context in mind, what is Paul's message here? What, what, was, what is he going to say to them? What would you say or want to leave with them? Well, his message in short that I would suggest is a message that is, is one of how Christians should be called to and are called to to give their lives away for the sake of the church the basic message here that we'll see this morning. And the reason for that is simple. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is Paul's point. And what I want to look at this morning is really just one thing. It's the how and the why. How are these elders, but also Christians today, uh, how are we going to, and why are we going to give our lives away for the sake of the world, for the sake of the church? And it's the same thing. It's one thing, according to this text, it's the blood of Jesus. And your two points this morning are simple. It's the motive and power to do these things. The motive for the church to give itself away is the the blood of Jesus. But it's also the power to do that as well. It's the blood of Jesus shed for your sins, shed for for you. It's the grace of God. This is Paul's point, what he is leaving with his elders. And let us look at those two things this morning. So first, the motive for Paul to give his life away. The motive for Paul to give his life away for the sake of the church, for the sake of others, for the sake of the world, is the purchase price or sacrifice that it took to, to, to secure and obtain the church itself, which is nothing uh, else but the blood of Jesus or the blood of God the Father's own one. We see there in verse 28. But back up to 26, where Paul says here, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And basically just what he's saying there is, I have, I have been faithful to God's word. I've, I've explained everything, <laughs> you know, um, and for those that don't believe that, that their, their judgment is not on my hands. I've, I've delivered the full counsel of God. But then in 28, he says this to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit had made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. As F.F. Bruce comments, their responsibility was all the greater and that the flock which they were called upon to tend was no other than the congregation of God, which he had purchased for himself. The ransom price was nothing less than the lifeblood of his beloved son. And Bruce goes on to say in in, in the footnotes there that that the Greek uh, of of that text there is one of endearment. That it literally says, by means of the blood of God's own one, referring to the father and the son. Friends, this is the motive or the reason for Paul Above all of their motives to give his life away 
for the sake of the church, for the sake of others, for the sake of the world. It's because of how it was obtained and secured the blood of Jesus. It's not money, by contrast. It's not power for Paul. It's not comfort. It's not the promise of heaven one day and of being given lots of fun stuff and joy. It's not even a a conditional motive for Paul, like, God, if you save my family, or God, if you give me this status in life, this job, this acceptance into this school, if I can make the team this year, it's not a conditional motive for Paul. If you do these things, then I will serve you. It's not even a justice issue, as we will see. God, if you right all the wrongs in my life, If you write all the things that have happened to me and against me that others have done, then I will serve you forever. It's not that. Rather, what is it? It is a motive that houses all of our motives in this world. God saved the world by means of the blood of his own son. There's nothing bigger than this in the world. And there's nothing more valuable than this in the world that could become a better, greater, more valuable motive for considering to give your life away for the sake of others. It is the motive that houses all other motives in this world, the blood of Jesus. We taste the value, paradoxically speaking, with the tragedy of war. Right? In war, it is the, the sacrifice that gives weight to victory in this motive or reason to procure what was fought over in one And war, as terrible as it is, is is never a matter of if blood will be shed, but what, how much? It is the soldier's duty to agree that these are the terms and nothing less. Thus, its victory carries for us immense value because of the sacrifice to get it. The sacrifices of any soldier are unthinkable. When we think about our own veterans in our own country and what they have done, we know that we cannot pay that debt and we are eternally grateful for that sacrifice. Yet, there is an even greater sacrifice, an even greater debt than all of those veterans put together. And it's Jesus. It's the Son of God. It is his own blood which has been poured out for you, for his church, for his world. And this for Paul is the motive for him that houses all all our motives to give his life away. Paul's won over by this. He is captivated by this. Everything that happens in his life is motivated or reasoned by the purchase price of what it took to obtain and to secure the church, of which he is an apostle at this point, but a citizen of this kingdom, a member, a follower of Jesus, whatever you want to call it. This is the motive for Paul, to give his life away, and it must be the motive for these overseers, which he is talking to to watch after and to care for the church after he leaves. And I would suggest to you this morning that just as Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus now or then, that the same is true for us today, this morning. Whether you're an elder or not, elders set apart, have responsibilities for sure, but this is a calling for the church as a whole. And see, often as we uh, think about the motives for why we would do this, why we would follow Jesus in general— I would argue or suggest that the motives for Christians today or at any time in history are are not too big. They're too small. 
The motives are too small. They're not big enough. When you consider what gets you out of bed in the morning, when you consider what excites you, what motivates you to work hard, to love well, right? Certainly some of those motives, there's a mixture there of good and bad, selfish, pure. How does then, though, as we think about whatever that is, whatever the motive, whatever the, whatever the thing you're thinking about, how does the blood of Jesus, the motive that houses all other motives in your life, either challenge that or actually shape or maybe even reshape all other motives for your life? And let me give you just an example. We think about loving our children for those that have kids or friends or, or, or family members. If my motive to love my kids is I want the best for them, or maybe the motive is I just feel better when I do love them well or as a parent, or maybe it just God calls me to love my kids, so that's good enough. Whatever that motive is, you know, how does the blood of Jesus either challenge or shape that motive for you? Well, one, it adds, what, a greater value to my kids than my own desires and my own happiness because the blood of Jesus is what shed for them too. And this means that I want, or that I will want what's best for them. I will love them and serve them, and I will give my life away for them, what, even at my own expense. See, I have a, I have a bigger motive than my own happiness. I'll do it when it doesn't feel good. I'll do it when it costs me everything. Otherwise, my kid actually becomes a means to what, what I want. Not what Jesus, who died for them, wants. Love of my kids, wanting the best for them, is actually then not a big enough motive to truly love them well. But the blood of Jesus is. So we think about how that even challenges and reshapes all other motives. The problem for us often is that our motives to give our lives away is not big enough. Paul cannot leave the church in Ephesus hoping that his love for them, right, his personality, his desire, his zeal, his dreams for the church and his love of Jesus Christ is actually going to be enough to carry them all the way through. There must be something bigger. We all need a bigger motive, and there is, not, uh, there is no greater motive than the blood of Jesus shed for his church. This is the first point. It's what Paul is leaving his people with, his leaders, his overseers. What he's leaving us with is that the way we will give our lives up for the sake of this world, the way we will be motivated to do that is the blood of Jesus. Let's look at that second point. What's the power to do this? Well, the power for Paul to give his life away is the same. See, the blood of Jesus is not just the motive for Paul, but it's the power to give his life away. In other words, it's the grace of God that that power empowers him to go through, even at cost to himself, as we'll see, to continue following Jesus at great expense for the sake of others. Look at verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any, or I, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What was the reason for Paul to give his own life away, Jesus's own blood, has now become the power as well to give his life away because the blood of Jesus has what been personalized for Paul. What do I mean by that? It's that the blood that was spilled, uh, right, that, 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 uh, of God's own son was not some, just some detached, uh, deistic, ritualistic formality to please an angry God. This is why, uh, or the blood actually was spilled specifically for Paul himself, and he knows this. 
the former persecutor of Jesus and the church. This is why he calls this the grace of God, because that's what it is. It is truly something no one deserves. Because of this, grace is always the power for ministry, the power to give one's life away for the sake of someone else, the power to take up our crosses, the power to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus. This grace is what has fueled Paul all along. I want you to consider all that he has been through up to this point. The beatings, the unjust imprisonments, being run out of town, death threats. He's got a few more shipwrecks ahead of him, we even know. But look where he is actually headed, where he tells us there in verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, uh, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that I will receive comfort and joy and happiness everywhere I go. No. Uh, That imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what the text says. What gives him the power to do that? It's grace. It is the grace of Jesus, the personalized bloodshed for his own sin. He knows he doesn't deserve this. He gets it anyway. Consider all of those things. God wasn't just doing something, uh, uh, some cosmic act in Jesus for all of creation, although he was, but he was also doing something personal for Paul. And not just personal for Paul, personal for the church, which also means you. whom he knows everything about, but has also known since the foundations of the world. If the church then, friends, was bought by the blood of God's own one, how do you not then carry that same value and status? This is Paul's thinking and understanding. And you do, and this is why he calls it adoption. It's the power of adoption, the doctrine of adoption that he'll talk about in Galatians, the letter, of, the letter to the Galatians. This grace is the power for Paul to give and continue to give his life away as as God has called him. And and that's going to look different for all of us. But this is where it starts. And just as this has been the power for Paul to give his life away, it'll be the power for the overseers of the church to continue to do the same. And the same is true today for all Christians. So let me ask, how how does grace then, the personalized blood of Jesus shed for you, how does this do this in your life? How does this give you the power to, to consider giving your life away, to actually giving your life away and serving and loving others? We see this with what it means to actually watch over yourself, if you notice that in the text. In short, watching over yourself is what? It's the daily practice of coming back to the gospel itself. It's the daily practice of, of, of remembering and, and being around God's people and being reminded and encouraged and, and having you know, the steady dose of the word preached in, you know, week in and week out of what is the gospel. Why do you need it? Being confronted with that on a daily basis and why this grace is actually so amazing. It is so easy to get caught, you know, 25, 30 years, 40 years of being a Christian in a church and, and, and lose sight Right, of the, of the amazingness that grace is. Grace amazing, however you want to phrase it. Um, and, you know, things kind of become rigid and ritual, ritualistic sometimes, and that happens because we're humans, but you find yourself thinking back, what was it? I remember what it was like when I really just sort of latched on, tasted grace for the first time. And sometimes we need that, but we get encouraged by, by God's people uh, in that way because this is what it actually means to watch over yourself. 
It's not all that it means, but this is the, the central idea that it is a daily watch to be reminded of what the gospel is and why you need it and why it is so amazing. Paul, again, is not expecting that since he has been with his people for three years, that they have seen his witness, that this will be enough for them to continue. And see, I think we also get a taste of this too today, where we look at churches that are driven by, by big personalities or, uh, you know, what we might term rock star pastors. That as they are here and they go away, the church goes away too. Because they're not connected to Jesus, in a sense. They're connected to that personality or what, that, what they were getting from that personality, right? No, there must be something more powerful than Paul himself, is what he is saying here. This is, there's something more powerful than any other pastor that will fill this pulpit for y'all. And it's Jesus himself. It's the blood of Jesus. It is his grace to you. It is the constant reminder day in and day, day out as you go to work, as you change diapers, as you go to the store, as you do homework, you stop and are reminded, he did this for me? Okay, let me move forward with that. That is what gives us the power and the ability to consider giving our lives away for the sake of others. Let me contrast that, uh, if I could quickly, that if, if Christians today don't watch over themselves in this way, there will be little power, uh, little desire to care for and protect the flock to give themselves away for the life of this world. Uh, Those two go hand in hand. How easy, without the grace of God impacting my life, and I'll use myself as an example here, would it be to say of any parishioner in the church, like, well, if they got themselves in that situation, they can get them out. I'm too busy. Or, you know, if if they just learned to make better choices. Right? There's this wonderful sketch where this it's a, it's a joke, but it's a pastor, you know, giving a sermon. And essentially, it's just like he's telling his congregation, stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that. All right? Of course, that's not the way that we pastor around here. But you get, you get the sentiment, right? If, if the grace of God is not working in me, that's how I'm going to treat you. That is how I'm going to minister to you without God's grace to remind me of my own failures that God loved me in spite of those things. I will only give my life away for others if it's what convenient. And the same is true for all believers. Most of all, I will only give my life away if I agree to you, which is just to say, I will only give my life away to you, for you if I think that you actually deserve it. And a church that is set up like that is a church that has no power to give its life away for the sake of the world. Again, Paul's not expecting that since he has been with his people for three years that they have seen his witness and that this will be enough to, for them to continue. And I, and I say that again because we, we love the apostles and you would think that that would be enough. It is not. It's not. There's only one thing that is enough and it is Jesus. It is his grace. It is his blood shed for you. This is both the motive, friends, but it is also the power for Paul to give his life away for the sake of the church, for others in the world. And it's the blood of Jesus, the blood of God, the Father's own one. This is what he is leaving with the overseers of this church. All right, so what does that mean for us then? All right, we gleaned a little bit from, from some of these points, of course, but um, this, whether you're an elder or not, this trickles down to everybody, as I've said. So what does this mean for us? And I want to rephrase that question as we look at just two quick points of application to end our time. 
is that what happens when people see this in the church? What happens when people see the church giving itself away for the sake of others that it's, because its motive and the power to do so is the blood of Jesus? That and the only thing. What happens when people see this? And the first thing that happens that I want to uh, commend to you and leave with you is that they see Jesus and not you, which is Paul's point. If you notice there in verses 18 to 24 at the beginning, Paul is doing a whole lot of you yourselves know how I lived, right? It's a little, we might call damage control. It seems like he's getting a little defensive. Um, and of course, we can understand why. He's just been run out of Ephesus there's probably a lot of rumors going around about him, which is one of the reasons he wanted to, needed to call his, his elders to him to sort of, we need to set the record straight. And it's as if he's sort of saying, look, forget about what people are saying. Remember how I lived in and among you these past three years. And that's where we get verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is Paul doing? He's saying, look, this is not about me. This has never been about me. My life isn't even about me in one sense for Paul. Everything I've done and everything that I'm doing or will do is about one thing. It's about Jesus. Where is it about me? Where it is about me, Paul would say, repentance hopefully is quick to follow. And I would say that hopefully the same is true for the church today. Where we go out and make much of ourselves, hopefully trying to minister the gospel to portray Jesus. Where, where I come across more than Jesus. I hopefully repentance is quick to follow. But when we are giving our lives away for the sake of the world because of the blood of Jesus, they see him and not us. And that's Paul's point. So much so that Paul is not, even, is not afraid, as we even see here, to be what? Persecuted. Even to die, only that I may, what he says, what? May finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's, his, that's all he wants. Paul will even say in verse 33, look, I coveted nothing. I didn't do this to get money. I didn't do this to get ahead. This wasn't about personal gain. This was about Jesus, the one who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is what people see when our chief motivation and powerful gospel mission is the blood of Christ, the grace of God in Jesus. They see Christ, not Paul. They see Christ, not Ryan. They see Christ fill in the blank. Second, not only does the world see Christ and not us, but second, the church becomes what we call countercultural, truly countercultural. And this should continue to be the church's aim that there is this tension to understand the culture and to be in the world and not of it, as we touched on a little bit last week. So as to stand out because something else, right, some other motive is driving you. And of course, we know what that is it's the blood of Jesus. But it's driving you in such a way that people are seeing and experiencing something different. And this is why, as we've touched on over the years that I've been here, that suffering and persecution, this is why suffering and persecution is so powerful. Because it eliminates, one, any doubt that your motive for doing whatever you're doing is self-seeking. That your first love isn't Christ. Right? It, it eliminates that. Instead, it leads you to places that are countercultural to the world around us, which are always places, right, of self-denial, sacrifice, and suffering. 
where people see Jesus, what, and not you. They see why you are truly doing what you are doing. And more importantly than that, if no one sees you, your king does. But you're your true audience of one. When people see the church giving itself away for others, for the world, right, because their chief motivator and power and desire to give themselves away is the blood of Christ, they, they see something different. This is what being salt and light is all about that Jesus talks about on the Sermon on the Mount. This is countercultural speak, and it's just another way to say what people experience and see in short form. That they are experiencing and seeing something different that is not of you, but of Christ. In this quick interview with Saturday Night Live actress Melissa Villasenor, she's talking about watching... Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the film that Tom Hanks did, uh, I think it's called Won't You Be My Neighbor, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And, and you know, if, if you know anything about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, it's an amazing story. If you've seen the movie, it's a great, great movie. He was a Christian, and his whole aim for the show uh, was simply to have a Christian presence coming through uh, TV, you know, kind of saw that vision a long time ago. And I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I'm sure I'm better for it. Uh, for its time and place, I think we could actually say it did, it, it did its job. There's a countercultural thing going on there. And even as we have revisited his, his life and story today, what is it that people say when they look at him, when they see his life? There's something different about it. But others, and this is where Melissa uh, Villasenor says, every time I watch Mr. Rogers, I feel like a horrible person. I realize I'm not that nice. I walk away thinking I was not aware of that flaw in my life. And of course, the point is, is not, you know, the goal is not to feel guilty about not meeting a standard. That's why there's grace upon grace. The, the goal is to see something different and to experience it, but also to, to, to uh, create in that viewer the idea and the possibility that this is true. And of course, it's not true in Fred Rogers. It's not true in any of us. Where is it true? It's true in Jesus. This is what becomes countercultural, that people begin to see him, that people begin to live differently and experience and see something that they wish was true, that they wish that they had. This is what being salt and light is all about. And we do this because it gives people the opportunity not to see ourselves, but to see Jesus himself. This is how the church becomes truly countercultural in its moment. The question for our time then might be, that, might, might, might be this, that for the church in the world that she lives in, what does the world need to see from the church today that would be counter enough for others to notice? And, and, and an example just given tomorrow, uh, Martin, Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King Day, his birthday, for celebration, um, go read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, written in 1963, April 1963. A, an, a, an amazing combination of both of these things. When I read it, he is pointing me to Jesus and he is speaking into uh, what, I would, what I would call is one of the most extreme examples of countercultural activity, especially given the history that we know what came out of that. When I see that, though, I see Jesus. This is the call for the church today. What is it that we could be doing that would cause people to see us differently and notice, but not to see us but to see the gospel, right, that we are living out, right? The, the, the motive and the power that is causing us to give our lives away for the sake of others. Now, to land this plane, will this be easy? Of course not. It's actually uh, an impossible order. It's an impossible call. Um, but we don't, because it's impossible, we don't, we don't pull away from it. Um, 
We have grace on top of grace there to um, continue to move us forward in this mission of God's church. And actually, the hope that Paul leaves the elders in Ephesus is there in verse 32 that I want to leave you with this morning. It says, and now I um, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And it's that last phrase, who are sanctified, that is a perfect passive participle. It's happened, it's complete, and it will continue to happen. This is the grace on top of grace. (laughs) The hope in all of this for the elders and overseers, but the church as a whole today is that Jesus is the one who will keep you through and through in this impossible task, as Derek Thomas writes concerning this verse, lest they be overcome by the solemnity of the charge, they are commended to the grace of God. Unless they think that they do not have the strength to meet this task, they are entrusted to the Lord for safekeeping. It is the Lord who will keep them, and you have that promise too. As we know, they're going to need it. The church in Ephesus They're going to need this because, as it turns out, the leadership here didn't last long. As one of the seven churches that John writes to in the opening pages of Revelation, he says this to them, chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, I know you are enduring, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. And what was that first love? Well, we know Paul has given it to them. It's it's Jesus. It's Christ. It's it's the motive and power to give one's life away for gospel mission. It is his blood shed for his church. I don't think this text in Revelation is here to discourage us, but I think it's here to show us the reality and the challenges of the church. This is why it is always the Lord who will keep you. That is our foundation. Again, Jesus' kingdom is inevitable and unavoidable. But I believe John's words here to the church in Ephesus are here for the church today and tomorrow as well. To see and to be reminded of the task of being God's people and to ask often as we watch over ourselves, have we forgotten our first love? And by the way, what is that? What is it? Fort Worth Press, what is your first love? And would we even be willing to press in further to ask the question, what would people say from what they see? My prayer is that they would see our first love is Jesus. That all we do, all that we are motivated by by, and the power to do so is nothing more or less than his blood shed for me and for his church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we think about your text this morning and Acts, your words to us as we read and hear Paul's instruction to the church in Ephesus, I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of what our first love is. And for for those that have left it or gotten distracted, that, that this happens to all of us, that you would, in your grace upon grace, bring us back. You would show us the wonderful beauties of your mercy to us, of your grace for your people. And for those that this morning, this hasn't been personalized, that they could even imagine or think that, that, that you would be so kind and caring to do this for me, that you would show this to them. 
that you would remind them that this is the type of God that you are. You come into messy places. You give your life away for the sake of messy people. We pray, Lord, that you would do this for your kingdom come, for your church, and for your glory alone, we ask. Amen.